Welcome to Twin Peaks Radio, the show where we remember, in the words of Major Garland Briggs, a real mystery can't be solved, not completely. It's always just out of reach, like a light around the corner. You might catch a glimpse of what it reveals, feel its warmth, but you can't know the heart of it, not really. That's what gives it value. It can't be cracked. It's bigger than you and me, bigger than everything we know. I'm Professor Robert E.G. Black, and today... I will continue my look at the opening titles. Our next image is, of course, the Welcome to Twin Peaks sign, with population 51,201, which, we probably all know, was not supposed to be the population of Twin Peaks. If you need a source for this, let's go. This is from Vulture, 21 Things You Didn't Know About Twin Peaks, by Brian Moylan. His number, bum bum bum, two. Population of Twin Peaks, as written on the sign in the opening credits, was supposed to be 5,120. ABC executives were allegedly worried that TV shows in rural settings didn't attract viewers, so they added another digit onto the end so the population swelled to 51,201. Uh, I don't totally buy the general phrasing of how people say that, because it's not just altering... The sign was a real thing. You gotta move the comma. Well, I guess adding the comma isn't that big and adding the one. Okay, I guess it's it's possible. They shifted the comma because comma doesn't take up much space. But I would point out that if you're not familiar with another small town, Cabot Cove, which had a population of, let me see, 3,560, and a lot of those people died in the process of the show because that was the show Murder, She Wrote. Murder, She Wrote, as far as how rural set shows go, average rank on television for its season. Whoa, Murder, She Wrote at 12 seasons? I didn't know that. <laughs> wow. Was number 8 on number 3, number 4, number 9, number 8, number 13, number 12, number 8 again, number 5, number 11, number 8 again, and number 58. It's rank in TV ratings, I guess, as average out of the season. So, I think they're wrong. And one of my favorite shows started just after Twin Peaks, right? Yeah, Picket Fences started in 92, lasted four seasons. The population of Rome, Wisconsin. Wait, that's a real place. Huh. I mean, that's not Twin Peaks related exactly, but I didn't realize Rome, Wisconsin was a real town. Its current population is only 2,798. The current population of the town of Snoqualmie is 13,480. North Bend has a population of 6,983, and that's actually a good comparison of what Twin Peaks should be, North Bend itself, because North Bend is where the town center of Twin Peaks, the diner and all that is, is fairly comparable to what it should be, and that would make a population of 5,000 in 1989 fairly reasonable. I was amused by the access guide to the town, well, to Twin Peaks, published by Pocket Books. Does it have a writer? I don't remember if it technically has a credited writer, but it was published copyright 1991. Maybe the review will mention it because I want to get into the review as well. They had an amusing thing. This is on like page two of the guide where they're like, did you know that Twin Peaks consumes more donuts per capita than any city in the United States? is equidistant between Juneau, Alaska and Cayenta, Arizona, has one of the safest lumber mills in the country, 
has more dog and cat lovers than Tipton-on-Trent, England, displays more Chinook and Kwakutu, Kwakutu, Kwak, I don't know how you pronounce that, K-W-A-K-I-U-T-L, totem poles than the museum in Spokane. And the last one on the list is recently discovered our population is not 51,201. And it's got an asterisk, got a picture of the sign at the side of the road. And for the asterisk, it says the 1990 census revealed our present population is 5,120.1, not 51,201. I don't know what the point one was, but you know they're making a joke out of the fact the sign is wrong. Before I get to talking about why the population matters, Wrapped in Plastic Issue 2 reviewed books related to the series, which at the time, let's see, they reviewed The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, which I will talk about once we hear about the diary. I want to read it again and take some notes. The Autobiography of FBI Special Agent Dale Cooper, My Life, My Tapes. I have read that, and we'll talk about some of it as we go forward. The Twin Peaks Access Guide and Twin Peaks Behind the Scenes, a book by Mark Altman. I wonder if that's still available. I should look that up. Oh, oh no, there's more. A Twin Peaks Interpretation and Welcome to Twin Peaks, a complete guide to who's who and what's what. Those were the books they reviewed in issue two of Wrapped in Plastic. Now, the review of Twin Peaks Access Guide by John Thorne, co-editor. The Twin Peaks Access Guide is an intriguing idea because of its unique concept. The book is written by the same people who have produced access guides for real places such as San Francisco and Paris. The Twin Peaks Access Guide follows the same format and style as the True Life Guides. It's chock full of detail, including history of the town, maps, lists of things to do and see, etc. Unfortunately, the book's inconsistency makes it merely a novelty, adding little to the enjoyment of the series itself. It's almost as if the Twin Peaks of the guide and the Twin Peaks of the television show are two different places. I'm not sure why they're saying this, because at the time, I'm not sure there was much that was wrong. Now it might have been contradicted by the secret history or, or the final dossier, but it says the authors painstakingly detail events such as the Packard Passion Play, which is interesting. I am going to have to talk about that. Yet mention only briefly the Miss Twin Peaks pageant. Well, yeah, I think that's fair because you shouldn't assume that the Miss Twin Peaks pageant is the most important thing in town just because we see it. We see it because we know many characters who are involved with it. That's actually a bigger problem, is that we know so many characters are involved, and it means that it's a little too pat, a little too cute. Continuing, though. According to various episodes, the pageant was in its 20th year. Yes, that still doesn't mean that everyone loved it. And the passion play is interesting. We'll get to that, though, later. Not today. Clearly, this event was a crucial plot aspect. Yes, near the final weeks of the series. Yes, it was. That doesn't mean it was important to the town. It was important to Jerry Horn, who we know him as one of the major businessmen in town, but that doesn't mean he's the only businessman in town. It's important to Dickie, another one where we know him as important because we know him. There's a bias to what we think. Details about the pageant's history and its past participants would have added more continuity and clarity. That is true to the Twin Peaks universe. The Owl Cave petroglyph is reproduced in another part of the guide, for something so cryptic, ominous, and secret to be blatantly displayed proves the guide's creators were reaching for material. I don't think so. The cave is somewhere that people go. That's why Annie has been there. That Margaret might never have gone there. 
seems reasonable. And if I remember right, Major Garland Briggs is not from Twin Peaks, right? Briggs is not from Twin Peaks, so that he has never been to that cave is perfectly reasonable. So he wouldn't connect the mark on his body with the mark in the cave. Margaret may have, but maybe her log told her, you know, it didn't matter. Don't worry about it. Until it came up and they show up together at the sheriff's station. We'll get to that when we get to that episode. I don't have a problem with them including something obscure like that. This theory is proven by other features. This is the review continued. By other features which end up being space fillers rather than valuable information such as the complete listing of everything from the Double R Diner jukebox songs. Yes, there is some filler, but I have a suspicion that other access guides for real places also had filler like that. There probably weren't many access guides for small towns, so they wouldn't have specific filler like diner jukebox listing, but they probably had obscure local oddities. Weirdly, one thing I noticed wasn't in there, or maybe not weirdly, I shouldn't say weirdly, one thing I noticed isn't in there is the Centennial Log, or the Big Log, as it's generally referred to around the fictional side which I talked about last episode. Continuing the review, for the nitpickers or attentive fans, whichever, many inconsistencies pop up. True Twin Peaks fans know, oof, that's what we call, here's where my professorship comes into play, that's what we call a true Scotsman fallacy. If you say that true Twin Peaks fans know something, then anyone who doesn't know something is thus not a true Twin Peaks fan, and that's rarely fair. True Twin Peaks fans know that the famous gazebo is located in Easter Park. Do they mention Easter Park in the show by name? I don't recall them doing that, but I'll get to that when we get to that, won't we? Ha ha. Just a quick note. As far as I can tell, checking a few episodes, no, they do not reference the name of Easter Park in the show. However, in the secret diary of Laura Palmer, she does mention a gazebo in Easter Park. So, not totally confirmed. And... It goes to the true Scotsman thing. I'll probably mention this inconsistency if it's inconsistent, because I like the access guide, I like the stuff it has, but wherever anything else contradicts it, I will trust the anything else over the access guide, because it wasn't produced by people tied to the show. Continuing, but according to the guide, it's in Lower Twin Park, and one would think to find the Timber Falls Motel, site of one of Catherine and Ben's trysts and Phil Gerard's living quarters, or the Robin's Nest Motel, Gerard's later hideout, in the lodging section. They're not there. That's fair. Streets are missing as well, like Riverside Drive, where Big Ed and Nadine live. Though minor, these mistakes and others, too numerous to mention, prove that little effort was made to let the details of the series determine the contents of the access guide. Well, right, it was produced, as you say, by people who weren't tied to series, so that's fair. But coming back to the population and why it matters, the same thing I was talking about with the mill and the log and everything else is that Twin Peaks is being presented, especially in these opening titles, as a mostly rural, mostly working class town. And we're going to learn in the pilot episode, and it will continue to be a theme, this has a surface like a sort of stereotyped American sort of 1950s town. Everyone's nice to each other. People know one another. The homecoming queen is famous. The principal cries and cancels classes because a student was killed. He doesn't even know yet a second student's missing, right? It's just for Laura Palmer. 
Laura Palmer is beloved. And this is important in a small town, as we have to understand that everyone knows her and everyone's tied to this story. We only know a certain amount of characters, although the series does have a very large set of regulars. When I watched, you can find it on YouTube in pieces, they had a Donahue episode, daytime talk show for those who are too young to remember Phil Donahue, and he had several cast members on. Also, Mark Frost was there, and they were talking about the cast in general, and it was something like 30 recurring roles. Uh, what is the total number of featured characters in the in the series? 35. That's why I have trouble (laughs) keeping up with it. (laughs) And that's a lot for a TV series that only lasted two seasons. Somebody's nitpicking right now because it lasted three seasons, but not really. But sort of, yeah, but I'm talking regular television. Cable show, big cast is not that unreasonable. Compare Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones has more of a big cast. I just feel like the opening titles is setting a very specific mood that we all understand. It's happening toward a very specific end. I would note regarding this sign, its location, for those of you who want to know, it is roughly the equivalent of 41471 Southeast Reinig Road, R-E-I-N-I-G Road. You will get to the sign. Except, at the time of this recording, the sign is not there because there's construction happening. However, According to this is from 425 Magazine, an article by Joanna Kreska, June 5th, 2017, when fans of the cult classic Twin Peaks journey to the east side, they visit all the requisite selfie-worthy sites, Salish Lodge and Spa, perched next to the pounding Snoqualmie Falls, Tweets Cafe, the Roadhouse Restaurant and Inn, to name a few. But there's one iconic location that up until recently just looked like a worn pull-off area on the shoulder of a winding country road. This small patch of earth now is home to a permanent installation of an easily recognized Welcome to Twin Peaks sign, which mirrors a similar sign from the show's pilot and opening credits. They should say echoes, not mirrors. Mirrors would be reversed. (laughs) The desolate spot along Southeast Rainy Road in Snoqualmie has sat vacant for nearly three decades since showrunner David Lynch placed a temporary prop in the dirt. During that time, self-proclaimed Peaks Freaks. Do they call themselves Peaks Freaks? I've actually seen no one use that phrase. Fans of the show have been seeking out the location armed with makeshift poster board signs of their own. Given the hype drummed up by the recent reboot, Twin Peaks Returns, Nokomi Valley decided to lean into the Twin Peaks culture to further boost tourism and thereby supplement local business revenue. According to Dan Marcinko, the Snoqualmie Parks and Public Works director who initially brought up the idea, etc. Continues for a few more paragraphs, but you get the point. This is echoed by a thing from Welcome to Twin Peaks.com by Peter Dom, June 1st, 2017. City of Snoqualmie has installed a permanent Welcome to Twin Peaks sign at approximately 41471 Southeast Rainick Road in Snoqualmie. In February 1989, they put the fictional sign there. The original artist, by the way, was Stephen LaRose, born in Seattle, Washington. Currently, well, currently as of 2017. Living in Talent, Oregon. Oh, they got an interview with him. Nice. Oh, he was an on-set painter, so he was working with the show generally, not just for this sign. I'll share this part. They asked, do you remember any given instructions or sources of inspiration, and were there many revisions? And he answers, this is my favorite part of the story. I remember somebody saying, you're local, aren't you? Can you make a sign real quick? Something kind of Pacific Northwest cheesy? Don't worry about it too much. We just need it for a drive-by shot. 
we might not even see it. So essentially it was filmed for the Dale Cooper arrives in town sequence. And I guess they liked it so much they used a shot of it in the opening titles. He continues, I think the lead carpenter handed me some charcoal and I sketched out a profile on some sheet wood and he cut it out and I painted it in a couple of hours. The freehand letters took the most time. The fact that it became iconic never really fazed me. I had learned not to let my ego get involved with what I had painted years before while working on theater sets. But I do tell the story to students because my friend worked for three weeks on a model of the Great Northern at the Salish Lodge for a scene that was cut while my three-hour sign becomes a hero. Unpredictable stuff like that happens all the time, and in the end, it is more about doing a good-slash-fast job for a salary. Fair. I'll talk more about this when the sign comes back in, when Dale Cooper is arriving, but it's worth noting now, the Twin Peaks are generally two separate mountains, Whitetail and Blue Pine, but the mountain we see behind the sign in this shot is Mount Sai, named for Josiah Uncle Sai Merritt who was a local homesteader. From the Wikipedia for Mount Sai, you can actually find out that in local native legend, do not know how you pronounce this native name, which the Snoqualmie people called it, Kopik, figures prominently in a Prometheus story from the Snoqualmie tribe. According to the story, blah, 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 I won't tell you the story there because I have a real source for it. This is from a book entitled The Siwash, Their Life, Legends, and Tales, Puget Sound and Pacific Northwest by Joseph A. Costello. Not sure when it was published offhand. The Fall of Snoqualmie. Not far from the Snoqualmie Hop Ranch on the Snoqualmie Prairie is a large mountain called Old Sai, with what seems to be the image of a human form on the face of it. The story of its origin, as told by the old Snoqualmie Indians, is one of the best legends that the Puget Sound Indians possess. Snoqualm, the moon, then the king of the heavens commanded the spider, Tai chief, to make a rope of cedar bark and stretch it from the sky to the earth. Upon seeing this, Sibiao's son, Sibiao, told Kiki, the blue jay, Sibiao's grandmother, to go up along the rope and then told his father to follow her. The blue jay kept going up and going up and going up, and Sibiao, following after her, kept climbing up and climbing up and climbing up, and the blue jay kept flying up and flying up and flying up, until she reached the underside of the sky, and Sibiao kept climbing up and climbing a long time, until he too got where the great rope was fastened on the underside of the sky. And the blue jay began pecking away, and she continued pecking away and pecking away and pecking away until she made a hole through into the sky. It was well into the night when Kiki finished making her hole through, and Sibiao followed after her into the sky. When Sibiao got through the hole, he found himself in a lake. He changed himself into leaves and got caught in a deadfall beaver trap, which had been set by Snoqualm. And when Snoqualm examined his trap in the morning, he found a dead beaver with his skull crushed in. The great Tai took the beaver out of the trap, took the beaver to his home, skinned it, stretched the skin upon a hoop, hung it up to dry, and threw the carcass over in the corner of his smokehouse. All day long and well into the night, Sibiao lay there, a dead beaver's carcass. At last, Snoqualm fell into deep sleep and was heard snoring loudly. Then Sibiao got up, took his skin from the wall, removed it from the hoop, and put it on himself, and set about to explore the house of the great Tai. Outside the house he found some great forests of fir and cedar trees, which he pulled out by the roots, and by his tamanawis magic, made them small enough so that he could carry them under his arm. 
He then entered the house and found hidden on one shelf the machinery that made the daylight, which he carried under the other arm. He took some fire from under the smoke hole, put some ashes around it, and wrapped it with bark and leaves and carried it in one hand. In the other he carried the sun, which he found hidden on the same shelf as the machinery, which made the daylight. Wait, if the machinery made the daylight, what's the sun doing? That's unclear. With all these things, he proceeded to... <laughs> That's the problem. With all these things, he proceeded to the lake out of which he had been trapped on the previous day, transformed himself into a beaver again, dove to the bottom of the lake and found where the spider Taiyi had made the rope fast. He changed himself back into old Sibiao again and descended to earth, where he set out all the great trees around Puget Sound. He gave fire to the people, set the sun in position, and put the machinery that makes the daylight to working. When Snoqualm awoke and saw what had been stolen, he, in great rage, pursued old Sibiao, going straight away to the place where the rope was made fast and started to descend to earth. The rope gave way with him and Snoqualm, and the great rope fell in a heap, making that great mountain near the headwaters of the Snoqualmie River. And the outline of the human face, which the Indian fancies to this day that he can see in the distance, is what is left of old Snoqualm, once the great king of the heavens. It's actually kind of cool. A little bit Jack and the Beanstalk, a little bit Prometheus. Lovely. And remember, in the words of Major Garland Briggs, mystery is the most essential ingredient of life. Mystery creates wonder, which leads to curiosity, which in turn provides the ground for our desire to understand who and what we truly are. This has been a production of Lemming Drop Studio. You can find links to more at lemmingdrops.com. Follow this show on Twitter at Peaks Radio and on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok at Twin Peaks Radio. Or join the Facebook group Lemming Drop Studio Tour. Also, you can support all my shows at patreon.com slash lemmingdrops. The owls may not be what they seem but they still serve an imperative function. They remind us to look into the darkness.